Elihu's Uh, The person and his speeches serve really important functions in the book of Job. First of all, they are a challenge to Job's self-righteousness. If you look at the first verse of chapter 32, it says, So these three men stopped answering Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. So they're like, we can't say anything anymore. Well, Elihu will not allow Job to get away with that. We studied last week uh, Job chapter 31 in which... uh, Job just sort of spells out, I am not guilty of these things. And, and if, if God thinks I've done these things, then let him come down and confront me. Uh, I think Job's friends are amazed at how audacious, how brave and foolish at the same time he is. Basically saying to God, listen, I've not done anything. Come down here and challenge me and see if I've done anything. Um, God does not answer, the friends do not answer, and therefore Elihu speaks up. The second purpose, uh, or the second function, I think, that Elihu serves is that of comic relief. Uh, His style is very different from the others. He's very wordy, he's overly apologetic. He is much younger, apparently, than the other people who have spoken. He's much younger than Job. Um, And one writer says he blusters onto the stage... In one respect, it is rather like a comic turn, for he manages to spend a a lot of time not saying very much. Uh, He covers much of the ground of the other friends while supposedly saying something new. Uh, Remember, Guy and I read uh, this first chapter of Elihu together, and at the end just sort of cracked up and started laughing because he's so uh, overly apologetic that one could argue that in the first chapter alone he He doesn't seem to say very much. But I think comedy is oftentimes in the the eye of the beholder. What seems funny to one person may not to another. I think the most important function that Elihu serves in the book of Job is as a break between Job's challenge and God's answer. Because when we get to chapter 38, God will answer Job. And he will speak... uh, pretty much all the way up through chapter 42. It is important, I think, that there be a break between Job's challenge to God and God's answer. Because if God had spoken right away after Job had challenged him, it would almost be as though Job were in charge and not God. God is independent. God is in control. And he does not have to answer just because we call on him and tell him that we want an answer. The initiative we see always belongs to God. This is a biblical principle that I think we forget from time to time. Uh, In prayer, which we've just had our prayer together, oftentimes we see prayer as, I begin the process, I speak to God, and then God answers. So I started it, and then God has to answer me. And that's not how it is. God works in my life, sometimes bringing good things, so I will respond in thanksgiving, sometimes bringing difficult things, so that I will cry out and say, help me. But God began the process, and I am responding to him. He is not responding to me. And had God spoken, if chapter 32 had been God answering Job, it it would be as though Job were the one who had the initiative, and that is not the case. 
Elihu's speeches give us a chance to have space and to see that God is free to answer whenever he wants. Just because we are desperate, just because we're really intense, just because we get really angry at God and say, come down here and answer me right now, doesn't mean that God has to do that. And he doesn't in this case. We have six chapters of somebody else speaking before God speaks. But these six chapters are not merely space filler. They are, in fact, preparing us to hear what God has to say. I think it is preparing Job for what God has to say. It is a very important bridge to God speaking. The fact that what Elihu has to say is important, I think, is shown in one thing. He gives four speeches. Okay. Now stop and think a minute as we've gone through the book of Job. How many speeches do the friends give? Do you recall? There are three cycles. Eliphaz and Bildad have three speeches each. Zophar only has two. Elihu has four. Meaning he is given more space, he is given more time, as much as to say that what he is saying is very important and we should listen to him. The first five verses of chapter 32 introduce Elihu to us because we've not met him before. We didn't even know he was there. We thought it was Job and his three friends. And now we find out that there was actually somebody else there uh, listening along as well. Uh, he's not introduced in the prologue and so he's introduced here. And if you have an NIV particularly, you might notice that most of Job is found in poetic form, the way that it is put. But the first five verses here are in prose. This is historical material giving us background. Follow along you, if you would, as I read. So these three men stopped answering Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. But Elihu, son of Barakel, the Buzite of the family of Ram, became very angry with Job for justifying himself rather than God. He was also angry with the three friends because they found no way to refute Job and yet had condemned him. Now Elihu had waited before speaking to Job because they were older than he. But when he saw that the three men had nothing more to say, his anger was aroused. So this is Elihu. We're given an introduction to him. In this transition between his oath of innocence uh, and what Elihu has to say, we are told that the friends stopped speaking and the reason is that Job is righteous in his own eyes. You may have caught something in the first verse, if not, look carefully. The relationship between Job and these three men has changed. Because thus far in the book of Job, they have been referred to as his friends. In verse number three, I'm sorry, verse number one, they're referred to as the three men. Okay. As much as to say that the friendship has been severed, has been broken, there's a chasm between Job and these men who used to be his friends, but have been so busy criticizing him rather than comforting him that their relationship has been severely damaged. And into this chasm of broken relationships steps this young man, Elihu. Elihu, by the way, his name, his name means he is my God. We're told several things about him. His heritage, his father is Barakel, which means God has blessed. His tribe is the tribe of Buzz. His clan, his family is that of Ram. Now, Buzz, we are told about in the book of Genesis chapter 22. 
Buzz was the brother of Uz. They were nephews of Abraham, the patriarch. Okay. So that's, I think, important. Uh, his clan is the clan of Ram. And there are different men in the Old Testament named Ram, and people have tried to tie him in, and I don't think that that works. He is, I think, more from the tribe is what we should look at rather than the family. But several things are important. First of all, Elihu is connected. He is related to Abraham, the man of faith. Okay. His name and the name of his father identify them as worshippers of God. Okay. We're never told that specifically about the three friends. But here we see that he comes from the line, the line of those who worship God. The second thing worth noting is that he may, in fact, be related to Job. If you go back to chapter one, where does Job live? He lives in the land of Uz. Uz was the brother of Buzz. So somewhere there is a connection, uh, family connection, but also spiritual connection that they both are worshippers of God. Okay. Second thing we're told about him here is that he is young. This will be dealt with more uh, as Elihu begins to speak. Um, but if you look at verse number four, we are told that he has not spoken up to this point because he was waiting while those older than himself spoke. He's a young man compared to the others and the older, the elder ones should go on ahead uh, and he's been listening. It has been suggested, by the way, that one of the reasons that we are told that he is the son of Barakel, of the tribe of Buzz, of the family of Ram, is because he has no reputation of his own. He's a young man. He hasn't done anything where you could say, oh, this is Elihu. No, you have to identify him within the context of his family. He's still too young to have done anything of note. Uh, Eliphaz, we are told where he's from. Uh, Bildad and so far, where they're from. We're not told their heritage. But Elihu has to be told to us because he's just a young man. He, he really doesn't, he hasn't done anything of any great significance. The third thing we are told about this man in this prologue is he is angry. In verses 2 through 5, there are four references to his anger. He is angry because the dialogue between Job and his friends has been argued badly on both sides. He is angry because Job has held on uh, to his own innocence, and in the process made himself more righteous than God. He's angry because the three friends have failed to answer Job correctly, and therefore they've put God in the wrong. And in fact, if you look at the end of verse number three, if you have an NIV, it says they found no way to refute him and yet had condemned him. And the NIV has a footnote at the bottom that they had condemned God. Because in failing to quiet Job, who justifies himself, in essence, they are condemning God. Elihu's not happy about this. He's also angry because they have nothing more to say. And they've not done a good job. He is an angry young man. And youthful rage is not without value. Uh, you think of young people who think they know everything. And they get angry because the world's not the way they think it should be. But you know, the anger of young people can, in fact, have great value. That it can be a check and balance. It, it challenges uh, the prevailing ideas of the time, the values, the attitudes. 
things that we've always taken for granted, the young come along and say, well, why are you doing it that way? I don't like it that way. Why are you doing it that way? And you know, part of it is because they are young. Um, but there's this certain anger, I think, that comes along. The young people sometimes see things that us older people don't see. Remember the story of the emperor who had no clothes? It's a young girl who says, the emperor has no clothes. All the adults were sort of playing along with this game. It reminded me when I was in graduate school at UCLA that in a seminar one time, uh, the professor said to us rather gently, but I think he wanted to correct us. He said, you know, you all are at the shark stage. You're a bunch of sharks. Uh, Because in our reading of works that had been done before us, we were merciless in our critique of other historians. We would just rip them to shreds. People who knew far more than we did at that point, and probably still do, uh, people who had done far more work than we had done. Now, our criticisms weren't wrong, okay, but as young people are wont to do, they see something that is wrong, but they don't see the big picture. They can only see this thing that is wrong. They don't get the big picture. They don't, in fact, have a long view. Now, remember, uh, while discussing a particular work, there was this glaring error. The, the author had made a mistake uh, in, in the work, and I, I, I don't remember if it was if he didn't know at the time or if it came out afterwards that, you know, what you said on this page is wrong. And I very naively asked the professor, well, why doesn't he just write another book and correct it? And I didn't realize, first of all, how hard it is to write a book, and secondly, how hard it is to get a book published. Um, the young people, I think, are that way. Elihu is this angry young man. But youthful anger has passion and it has enthusiasm, and I think that has value. Elihu gives four speeches, and let me just briefly tell you what they are about. We will begin looking at them uh, in several weeks. The Lord willing, John Schreiner will be speaking for us next week. Uh, But the next time that I speak, we will look at the first speech. The first one is that God instructs people through affliction. Secondly, that God governs with justice, without exception. Thirdly, God cannot be put under obligation, either by our sins or our righteous acts. That people think God has to do something. Look at this terrible thing this person did. God has to do something. God does not have to do anything. And lastly, uh, God disciplines those who are in jeopardy. You're not actually in trouble, but you're, you're on the verge of getting into trouble and God will use discipline to correct you. But before Elihu gives his speeches, he must explain to Job and his friends his approach to the matter. Okay. He will not really say anything dramatically new but he will say it in a remarkably different way. Let's look, first of all, at verses 6 through 10. So Elihu, son of Barakel, the Buzzite, said, I am young in years, and you are old. That is why I was fearful, not daring to tell you what I know. I thought age should speak. Advanced years should teach wisdom. But it is the spirit in a man, the breath of the Almighty, that gives him understanding. It is not only the old who are wise, not only the aged who understand what is right, uh, 
Therefore, I say, listen to me. I, too, will tell you what I know. In keeping with custom and protocol, Elihu apologizes for speaking up because he is younger than the rest of them and perhaps it is not his place to speak. He has been listening carefully as these men have gone back and forth and they've been arguing the issue, why is Job suffering? For them, that has been the issue. But as he's been sitting on the sidelines, Elihu has sensed that there's a question that they need to answer first before they get to that, why is Job suffering? And that is, what is the source of authority for wisdom? If someone is going to speak with authority and with wisdom, where do they get that authority? What is the source of that authority? And if you think a minute, as much as he talks about being young, that young people are, in fact, more sensitive to issues of authority. Part of it is because they are going through a maturing process. They are, they are developing a sense of identity, a sense of independence. And one of the things that happens there is they begin to challenge authority. They want to know where the boundaries are. And if the lines are too rigid, and I don't think we see that too much in our culture anymore, or if they're too lax, if there are no boundaries, young people are just all over the place because those boundaries, they're able to go up against them and develop a sense of, oh, this is who I am. This is my place in the world. This is my identity. Elihu has been respectful. He has kept quiet. He's been thinking to himself, age should speak, advanced years should teach wisdom. But now it is his turn to speak. For him, the issue is authority. Him, for him, the issue is wisdom. And in doing so, he challenges the three friends and the basis for their authority. If you remember, Eliphaz had a spiritual experience. He had a vision at night. That is the basis of his wisdom. Bildad bases his on tradition, so far from common sense. But Elihu, as he's been sitting, has realized that wisdom is not only with the great. If you look at that footnote for the NIV, it has great. And the King James, in fact, has a great men are not always wise. So wisdom isn't just with great people. It isn't only with those who are older. You know, people talk about as you get older, you get wiser. And for some people, that is true. But for many people, it is not the case. And I remember our dear friend Bob King, uh, when he lived in a retirement home, he said the one thing that struck him about living there was how bitter the people were. That he thought being surrounded by people of his age, there would be this sense of camaraderie, and I think almost a sense of wisdom of experience. And in fact, that was not the case. Elihu has concluded that the basis of wisdom is not in age or in greatness, but it actually must come from God itself, himself. It is to be the spirit of God, the breath of the almighty. Again, the NIV has a footnote here at spirit and the footnote it has a, as capital S, meaning the Holy Spirit, the breath of the almighty. In the New Testament, we would call this inspiration because Paul tells Timothy, all scripture is given by inspiration or all scripture is God breathed. God breathes. It inspires the writing. The question that is, 
is Elihu claiming to be inspired by the Spirit of God? Well, on some level, yes, he's doing precisely that because he's a young man. The others are older. He's not a great man. Again, we have to be told he's the son of Barakel, of the tribe of the Buzzites. I mean, this man has not done anything in his life. So if he's going to make any claim to speak the truth, it must come from God. I think as a young man, he is convinced of this, that the older people that he's been listening to, they've done a terrible job. They've just botched this terribly. He can't do any worse. And so in verse number 10, therefore I say, listen to me. I too will tell you what I know. So he begins by saying it is not the age of the person that is the basis of wisdom. It is the spirit of the person. The second thing he tells them is that they should be open in their discussions and not close minded. Look, if you would, at verses 11, 12 and 13. I waited while you spoke. I listened to your reasoning while you were searching for words. I gave you my full attention. But not one of you has proved Job wrong. None of you has answered his arguments. Do not say we have found wisdom, but God refute him, not man. Elihu wants them to listen to him because he's been listening to them. He has earned the right to speak because he has been listening. The implication is they haven't been listening. And we've noted that as we've gone through the book of Job. Because of their prejudices and their preconceived notions, no matter what Job says, they're not listening. They just are not listening. Elihu wants to open up the lines of communication with Job. There are some basic principles of good communication that Elihu gives us in these three short verses. First of all, let the other person speak first. Verse 11, I waited while you spoke. Let the other person go ahead. Bad conversation is marked when both parties want to speak at the same time. Okay. And by the way, I, I don't know, I'll have to speak to those who are older even than myself, but it seems that people are incredibly rude nowadays that the idea of letting somebody else speak first, go ahead, you first, and then I will answer, we have what one author calls the first strike capability mentality. That is, I want to be able to hit you first, so to put you on the defensive, so that you can't ever really make your point. In Job's opening cry of anguish, he says, why was I born? I wish I'd never been born. And he stops for a minute, and then his friends jump in, and then they begin to criticize him. So first of all, let the other person speak first. Secondly, follow the thinking of the other person to the end. Elihu says, I listened to your reasoning. A major fault, I think, in modern communication, or in the case of a poor listener, is that they hear the first part of the argument, and in their minds, they finish the argument without letting the person finish, and then they begin to respond to what they think the person has said, when in fact they've only heard the first part. Have you ever noticed that? That people, and have you ever noticed that when someone is talking to you, that you hear the beginning of it, and then in your mind you're already 
figuring out an answer to give them, and you don't listen to all that they have to say. A good listener begins at the beginning and listens all the way to the end before they begin to answer. Elihu's listened to all the speeches from beginning to end. He's listened to every word. Now he is ready to speak. That's, I think, a good listener follows it all the way to the end. Thirdly, a good listener does not interrupt. I waited while you spoke. I listened to your reasoning. While you were searching for words, I gave you my full attention. Because, you know, sometimes you, you just can't think of the words you want to say. He, does, he doesn't interrupt. He lets them find that word that you want to say. And he lets them finish the speech. Rudeness seems so prevalent today. It seems to be the norm rather than the exception. I think people have forgotten that interrupting someone else is in fact rude. It just seems that that is the case. Uh, particularly if you watch uh, any of these talk shows on TV uh, when pundits are giving their opinion. And again, I have, on a number of occasions while watching either Fox News or CNN, simply turn the channel because no one will let the other person speak. They're always trying to interrupt. And in many ways, they're not letting the person finish out their thought and responding to the whole thing. They're only responding to what they think the other person is saying. Lihu is a good, answer, a good listener. He's ready to answer now because he's listened to all that they have to say. I wonder if the three friends are feeling somewhat uncomfortable because they've not been good listeners. In fact, we saw in chapter 13, Job said, if only you would be altogether silent for you, that would be wisdom. Hear now my argument. Listen to the plea of my lips. Job is saying, will you guys please just shut up and listen to me? Because they're not listening to him. In their arguments, they're saying what they think Job has said, and it isn't what he has said. They're too busy getting their arguments ready to listen to what he has to say. So, wisdom doesn't come from your age. It comes from the spirit that God gives you. Secondly, we need to be open and to listen rather than to be closed-eared or closed-minded in a discussion. Thirdly, we should be passionate and not detached. Elihu kept silent while listening as his friends kept talking past each other. He's not going to do that anymore because he's just, in many ways, too angry. Look, if you would, at verses 14 through 20. This is the longest section uh, of this particular portion. But Job has not marshaled his words against me, and I will not answer him with your arguments. They are dismayed and have no more to say. Words have failed them. Must I wait now they, that they are silent, now that they stand there with no reply? I too will have my say. I too will tell what I know. For I am full of words, and the spirit within me compels me. Inside I am like bottled up wine, like new wineskins ready to burst. I must speak and find relief. I must open my lips and reply. One author has said of this, in contrast to the sterile detachment of Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar from the debate, Elihu confesses his passion and admits that facts and feelings will be inseparable in his speech. 
No, no, you know, don't get too passionate. Don't get, get too worked up. Just give us the facts. We just want the facts. And Elihu is basically saying, I can't just give you the facts. I'm angry. I'm like wine that has been put into wineskins and wine ferments and the gases make the wineskin ex, you know, expand to the point where it wants to explode. He's ready to explode. He's been listening for all these chapters to these people and now he wants to say what he has to say. You see, and this is perhaps a very bad way to put it, but Elihu was not a theologian. He was a human being. The theologians are talking theology. And they're talking past each other. Elihu's a human being. He has passions. He has feelings. He has, he has anger. And he is going to speak based on that anger. Fourthly, he thinks that there should be equality and not partiality as they speak to one another. He is not going to show partiality. He's not going to use flattery. He's younger than them, but he is not going to say, well, because you're older than me, then I'm going to be super careful and not say certain things. He will say what he has to say. Indirectly, I think that he is criticizing Job's friends because they have been very hard on Job and not on themselves. They've excused their own faults while condemning him for his perceived faults. Now, with this, uh, the climate for discussion changes dramatically. Look, if you would, at verses 21 and 22. I will show partiality to no one, nor will I flatter any man. For if I were skilled in flattery, my maker would soon take me away. He's going to get worked up. He is angry. But he's going to be fair. The friends have not been fair, but he will be fair. Now the climate for communication has changed dramatically. He will speak openly. He will speak passionately. But he will not use flattery. He will not be overly harsh. Even if the critics are right about Elihu, and for centuries critics have been brutal against Elihu, um, even if he says nothing new, he changes the, old, the whole atmosphere and climate of the discussion. And we see it right away in verse number one of chapter 33. But now, Job, listen to my words. Pay attention to everything I say. This is the first time in this book with the three friends. Job's wife did it, but the three friends. This is the first time that a comforter has addressed Job directly. All the other friends have been talking in terms of abstract about, oh, the wicked man. This is what happens to the wicked man. They mean Job. But they're, they're not talking to Job. And in fact, Job will say at a certain point, look at me when you're talking. We, do you remember this? In I think chapter 13, when you're talking to me, look at me. And, and one almost has a picture of him sitting on the ground and the friends standing up one by one and giving these theological speeches, but not looking at him. Elihu will be open with him. He will be direct. He's angry. He's passionate. But he's going to be fair. He turns around and he looks at Job and he says, OK, Job, I'm talking to you. Now, 
This opens up Elihu to criticism. First of all, that he addresses Job by name. No title, no term of respect. In other cultures, if somebody's older than you, then there needs to be a term of respect. In the Philippines, manong or manang. In other cultures, are uncle or aunt. You know, you, you just if somebody's older than you, you, you don't call them by their first name. Not like this country, okay, where you have people who are teenagers addressing people in their 50s and 60s by their first name. We don't know how old Elihu is, but he's made a big deal of the fact that he's younger, younger than the others. Okay. And for him to address Job the way he does, culturally, I think, might be unacceptable. But he's not intending to be rude. He simply is going to say, Job, I'm not giving you special treatment. I know I'm younger. I know you're older. Okay. But here we're equal. Let me talk to you and listen to what I have to say. Yeah, listen to every word I have to say. That's rather presumptuous, isn't it? That is to say, Job, what I have to say is important, so you need to listen to me. But wait a minute. What did Elihu just say about communication, about listening? Elihu said, I listen to every word. Okay? Listen to me to the end. Okay? Don't interrupt me. Let me finish my speech. You listen to me because I have something to say. Let's, let's read all that he has to say here in verses 1 through 7. This is still introductory. I, uh, the next time I speak, it will begin the first speech. But now, Job, listen to my words. Pay attention to everything I say. I am about to open my mouth. My words are on the tip of my tongue. My words come from an upright heart. My lips speak, sincerely speak what I know. The Spirit of God has made me. The breath of the Almighty gives me life. Answer me then if you can. Prepare yourself and confront me. I am just like you before God. I, too, have been taken from clay. No fear of me should alarm you, nor should my hand be heavy upon you. He claims to speak from an upright heart. That is a big claim. He claims that he is sincere. It's also a big claim. But all of these go in the direction of what Elihu is trying to say to Job. I'm a human being just like you. Here we are, two men. You are older than me. You may be wiser than me, but God made us both. We both come from the dust of the earth. God formed us in our mother's wombs. And so I have on a certain level the right to speak to you. And here I will tell you what you have done that is wrong and what needs to be corrected. Let's talk. And now Elihu is ready to speak. And hopefully Job is ready to listen. As I said, the next time that I speak, we will begin with his first speech. But just in conclusion, let's bring this all together. I think there are two things for us to learn to take with us as we leave here today. First of all, our relationships with other human beings. The nature of our communication should show respect. We should be good listeners. And being a good listener is not automatic. It requires discipline. It requires practice. Okay. We just have to listen. 
This goes contrary to our culture, by the way. And oftentimes we get nervous that if we don't speak up, we'll never get our chance to speak. Listening, by the way, is an act of faith. That God is in control of, what, of the conversation. And if what I have to say needs to be said, God will afford me the opportunity. We need to be listeners. Uh, James, in his epistle, said uh, that there are three things that should mark our lives. We should be slow to speak, slow to anger, quick to listen. As I look at my culture around me today, I think we are the exact opposite. We are quick to speak, we are quick to anger, and nobody seems to listen. Now, this is important. We are the people of God. We have the Word of God. We have the Gospel. If we're not careful, we would think, hey, you guys out there, you need to listen to us. And if they don't, then we need to speak louder. Maybe we need to interrupt them. Because we have the truth and they don't. And to say that the church of God needs to be made up of listeners might seem to be the opposite of what we think. That we should be the speakers. We should be the tellers. No, I think God's people should be the listeners. We should listen to what people are saying. We should hear the pain that they are going through. The burdens that they carry. And after we listen to them, then we can tell them the truth of God in the way that they need to hear it. The gospel in our generation and the last few generations has been packaged as though everyone needs to hear exactly the same thing. Read the gospels. We have talked about this before. Read the gospels. Jesus never says the same thing twice to two different people. Every person he speaks to about the gospel, he says something different. And why is that? Because Jesus listened to people. Imagine God came down as a human being. Shouldn't this man have been speaking all the time? And instead we find him listening to people and then speaking. Listening and then speaking. And so in our relationships with people, we need to be listeners. I think chapter 32 of Job is incredibly important for us in that regard. What about our relationship to God? I think it is important for us to see these six chapters as a reminder that God doesn't have to run to us whenever we call. He's not a servant that we ring the bell and he comes running. He knows what we need even before we ask. He knows what's going on in our lives even before we tell him. Okay? He's aware of this. In the midst of pain, in the midst of difficulties, confusion, we become very intense. And like Job, we cry out and we say, God, where are you? Answer me now. And then when he doesn't, some people lose their faith. They walk away. 
When I needed God, He didn't come and answer me. Well, these chapters should tell us something very important. God comes when it's His time to come. He's God, not us. And whatever is going on in our lives, God is the one who has arranged that so we would cry out to Him. And when He's good and ready, He will come and He will answer us. It is very disturbing, and particularly, again, in this culture, God has been reduced to someone who is like a vending machine. And uh, certain preachers are able to get large followings because they say, God listens to me when I speak. And I will tell you the secret of how to get God to answer you every time you speak. If that were true, then who's God? It seems as though I'm God. He has the power, but I'm the one who gets to tell him what to do. I am so grateful for these six chapters because when we get to chapter 38, God will speak and it will blow us away. God is God and there's no doubt about that. But he waits. He lets Elihu speak for six chapters first. Because God will not be forced. God will not be pushed. He will come when it is his time. And as his people, I think we should recognize that. And when we speak to people who are in need, who are in pain, and they say, where is God? Why hasn't he answered me? Where is he? Maybe he doesn't care. We need to say, well, God will come when he's ready, and I don't know when that is. Perhaps not so much for other people, but for ourselves in the midst of great difficulty to say, okay, Father, when you're ready, I'm in a bad way here, but you're God. You know what is best. And when your time, please come and deliver me out of my difficulties. God does answer Job. God does deliver Job. But not because Job rang a little bell. Not because Job used some type of spiritual blackmail. Here, I've written down all the things. I'm not guilty of this. Come on, God, see if you can accuse me of any of these things. Uh, God doesn't play that. Okay? He's God. He's independent. He is in control. And I think we would do well to remember that. Let's pray together. Our Father, we confess that we are human. And as such, we don't always listen to you or to those around us. We feel like we want to be heard that that we know something that is of value, and and perhaps we do. But we fail to take into account that we should listen in faith until we are given the opportunity to speak. And particularly to those we work with, those we live with, perhaps our neighbors. We have the gospel. We have the good news. But we need to sit and listen to them as they describe their bad news, the difficulties of their lives. Before, with gentleness and respect, we share your truth with them. And in our relationship with you, I fear that we are too bossy, too demanding. That we have forgotten who you are. That you don't need us. 
that you will not be bullied into answering our prayers. You know what is best. And in faith, we should humble ourselves before you. Father, I realize that what we've talked about is so different than what we see in our culture around us. It seems in many ways so unnatural. But it is biblical. It is truth. By your Spirit, may we in the days to come take this to heart. Meditate on it and put it into practice in our lives. May your grace and spirit go with us as we leave this place. May we be lights in a world of darkness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand please as we sing the doxology together? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Amen.